America's COVID death toll has now surpassed every other country on Earth. And President Donald Trump continues to talk about opening up our economy. Farmers and food suppliers are dumping food to protect prices. This is America Dissected, and I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El Sayed. Hydroxychloroquine is one of the oldest drugs available. It's a synthetic form of quinine, the stuff in tonic water, long used as an anti-malaria medication. In the U.S., it's mainly used to treat patients with dangerous autoimmune disorders, such as lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. These diseases aren't only deadly, they're terrible. The body literally attacks itself, and symptoms can happen at any time, anywhere. The word lupus itself derives from the Latin word for wolf, a nod to the cunning and deadliness of the disease, and the fear it invokes. Lupus disproportionately affects women, and in particular, women of color, people who are already less likely to have access to health care in our society as a function of structural racism and the poverty it causes, which we discussed on Friday. As President Trump recklessly promoted hydroxychloroquine from the White House podium, he said something that captures the challenge that so many people are having right now. And I say it, what do you have to lose? I'll say it again, what do you have to lose? Take it. I really think they should take it. Well, for the people at risk of losing access to the medication that keeps Lupus's wolf at bay, they have a lot to lose. My name is Becky Human. Um, I'm currently a first-year student at Harvard Law School. Um, <laughs> uh, other than that, I don't know what's relevant. I'm a chronic illness patient. Uh, I have an autoimmune disease, and uh, I've been taking hydroxychloroquine for, oh, going on four years now. I started taking it in December 2016. I tried to get my prescriptions refilled in advance, as the CDC had kind of advised people to try and refill your prescriptions in case you need to stay home. Um, I was unable to because my insurance doesn't allow me to refill prescriptions in advance. I have to be out before I can refill my prescriptions. And a lot of my friends in the area who also have autoimmune diseases and take hydroxychloroquine started telling me, I've spent all morning calling and trying to find someone who will refill my prescription. Like, I was hearing stories that some pharmacies were contacting doctors or, you know, just not filling them automatically unless they got real actual proof that you needed it for something. I ended up having to call my rheumatologist directly, which isn't something that's very easy, you know. I was able to talk to her and she was able to order me a new prescription to a local pharmacy that I had called her and had found that they would be able to refill my prescription. She had to include specialized notes saying, this is for a legit reason. I think the thing that's really scary, yeah, is just that for a lot of autoimmune patients, for a lot of chronic illness patients, the drug cocktail that you have to take to keep your condition stable is so finely tuned, like down to the milligram. And you can't just stop taking something. Like, it, it just can lead to really permanent consequences for people. And as new evidence is showing, there may be more to lose for people with COVID-19 than we thought as well. Because it's been around so long, we have a good sense of the potential side effects of hydroxychloroquine. They include psychiatric effects, vision loss, and heart arrhythmias. But because we just don't know much about COVID-19 in general, we know even less about the side effect profile of hydroxychloroquine in people with COVID. In fact, in Sweden, some hospitals have stopped using hydroxychloroquine for COVID-19 altogether because of the severity of the side effects. And France's version of the FDA published data showing at least 43 incidents of serious cardiac side effects. Their officials think that there may be higher risk of these heart side effects in patients with COVID-19. In Brazil, a study was prematurely ended because there was such a high rate of these side effects. I'll leave it in the words of Dr. Anthony Fauci. 
we operate on what evidence is and data is. So although there is some suggestion that there is a benefit there, I think we've got to be careful that we don't make that majestic leap to assume that this is a knockout drug. All this gets back to something even more fundamental that I've been saying from the very beginning. Science, and only science, can tell us what is safe and effective as a treatment for COVID-19. I hope that we find a safe and effective treatment soon. I wish we'd found it two months ago. But hope is not evidence. Hope is biased. And science should not be. Until we've got strong, randomized control trial evidence about the safety and efficacy of hydroxychloroquine, Dr. I mean, President Trump should stop promoting it. For folks like Becca, there is indeed a lot to lose. There's another drug, remdesivir, which is showing potential for treatment of COVID-19. A paper published over the weekend in the New England Journal of Medicine suggests some promise, but we're still waiting definitive randomized control trial evidence. But this drug raises another question. Who pays for drug development and who profits off of it? If you remember back to our episode on drug pricing in the first season of this podcast, we talked about another treatment for a deadly infectious disease, sofosbuvir, the blockbuster hepatitis C drug sold as Sovaldi, under a cost of $84,000 a course. That absurd price meant that a lot of people who needed it didn't get it. Well, the same corporation that manufactures Sovaldi, Gilead Sciences, they're the pharmaceutical company that owns remdesivir too, this new promising COVID-19 medication. Will Gilead gouge taxpayers for this drug too? And what's to stop them? All of this points to an even bigger question. There's been a lot of talk about developing a vaccine for COVID-19, and more than 115 candidate vaccines are in the pipeline from several different pharmaceutical companies. But what happens when one comes to market? Who'll own it? How much will it cost and who'll set the price? Will we be able to manufacture enough? And how fast? I spoke with Zane Rizvi, a law and policy researcher at Public Citizen, a consumer advocacy organization, to learn more. That conversation after the break. Zane Rizvi is a law and policy researcher at the nonprofit Public Citizen, a consumer advocacy group. His focus is on drug pricing and drug availability. He's been thinking a lot about both the treatment and the vaccine pipeline for COVID-19. Zane, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Abdul. Can you give us a lay of the land about how a vaccine is made? The key part is how do we get a response? So typically the way a vaccine works is that you, you try and figure out how to develop an antigen that produces a response in the body. So when you talk about response, you mean a biological response in the body. Exactly. The immune system, we want the immune system to respond. And so typically that's how the process works. One of the interesting things about this moment is that there are a lot of different ways that we're trying to get that antigen. And so what I mean is typically, you know, sometimes you have like a, a portion of the like a, a inactivated virus itself. Um, but a lot of the new technologies, they're even looking at let's go a step further and let's get into the mRNA, let's get into the DNA, let's get those uh, into the vaccine. So instead of actually, you know, injecting someone with the antigen protein that causes an immune system response, you basically just put the code into the body, you let the body's own operating system develop that antigen, and then that antigen creates uh, the, the body's response, which we want, which are these antibodies. Mm, so you're, you're using the genetic information of the virus to create some of the, the, the virus itself in the body, and then the body attacks the virus after it's being made. Exactly, exactly. 
Wow. Um, so tell us a little bit about the the economics and the finance of uh, how a uh, a vaccine usually comes to market. So basically, these new methods of of, of producing vaccines were were very considered very speculative. Industry didn't really want to go near them. It was considered too complex, too risky. And so the government stepped in. So the Department of Defense has this cool new program called DARPA, which is a Defense Advanced Research Products Agency, I believe. And DARPA poured in a ton of money thinking that, you know, typically the way a vaccine is made takes too long. And so how can we how can we speed up the process? How can we get a vaccine uh, as quickly as possible? And so then they started they started investing a ton of money into things like these DNA and RNA vaccine technologies. They're called platform technologies. And so DARPA starts making this investment. Of, of course, that's that's our taxpayer money going into this investment. Um, and now I presume that these vaccines are being researched and developed by uh, by companies, by corporations. No. It's not that simple. It's always the federal government is playing a huge role in whatever the companies are doing. And so, you know, we did a report uh, right around when the COVID outbreak was really starting to spread in the U.S. And we found that up until that point, the federal government had, you know, devoted significant resources to developing the technologies, the candidates, the methods of addressing coronaviruses. You know, one thing to keep in mind is that, you know, SARS-CoV-2, which is the technical term for this virus, is new. But we've had coronaviruses jump from animals to humans before. So we've had SARS in 2002. And so we've had prior experience with these viruses and we've been trying to work. And one of the remarkable things I found was that, you know, the federal government has really led the way and our tax dollars have really led the way uh, in how we uh, address these viruses. Mm. So let's say we find uh, a candidate uh, vaccine that is uh, safe and effective. How does that vaccine actually get to us? Who manufactures it and uh, who pays for it and who gets the money on the back end? The issue is that the federal government has, you know, really scaled up all its contracts, all its um, attention to developing a COVID-19 response. And so, you know, the government is providing literally hundreds of millions in, in some cases of dollars to these companies to allow them to scale up not just their research and development, like right now the government is funding research and development, but the government is also providing a ton of money to scale up manufacturing facilities. Mm. And, and the reason this is important is because we need massive production. So we've got, you know, a population of 350 million and, you know, to achieve the kind of uh, herd immunity that we need, we need 50 to 60 percent of the population to be to be vaccinated, meaning at that point we need uh, probably right around 175 million 190 million uh, vaccines uh, manufactured. Um, is that possible to do in a short period of time? You know, it's tough. It, it's really tough because right now there, there are four major pharmaceutical companies that have the production capacity to develop vaccines at, at really at scale. And the problem is some of the candidate vaccines that we're hearing about mm-hmm. don't actually have any partnerships with the major pharmaceutical companies. So, for example, you might have heard a lot about the NIH Moderna vaccine. This is using some of that really new technology I was talking about, the mRNA stuff. In February, Tony Fauci was complaining about how no major pharmaceutical company has stepped up and said that if this mRNA vaccine is successful, we will scale it and we will produce it uh, enough in enough quantities for, for, for the U.S. and for the world. The incentives are all messed up. 
if you think about you know if you if you think about it putting your company hat on you're primarily driven by profit public health is always a second consideration and so the issue is that no company has the incentive to scale up production capacity no and no company has any reason to fully address this threat despite its global consequences and despite the global nightmare situation that we're in hmm. and what does that tell us about the way that this sort of for-profit uh, pharmaceutical industry operates more generally and what the risks are? You know, the COVID-19 outbreak is showing how all of our institutions are vulnerable and broken, and I think no more so than our healthcare system. As you look at the pharmaceutical industry, you see that, you know, some, some players are stepping in, but there's a real tepidness into how engaged the companies are. And once again, what you see is the fundamental role of the federal government in driving meaningful innovation. You know, the NIH alone in, in, in since 2002 had spent $700 million on coronavirus research and development and basically supported the vast majority of work that was going on prior to the outbreak. And now with the outbreak, another division of Health and Human Services called BARDA has just taken over and pumped hundreds of millions of dollars into these companies to get them to start doing things. Hmm. So we've got a scenario right now, as you're laying out, Zane, uh, very helpfully, where the, the, the U.S. federal government is putting a lot of money on the front end into research and development for these really novel vaccine techniques. And then you've got uh, a couple of small biotech firms who are taking that research and effective you have to get it manufactured. But the only the only institutions that are big enough to manufacture them tend to be these gigantic pharmaceutical corporations. But for them, you know, a one-time investment in a huge rollout for this vaccine just doesn't make economic sense. And so, you know, the, the government's sort of investing in all this research, but then all of the back-end side is private, and that's getting in the way. Am I understanding that correctly? I would say so. We need an all-hands-on-deck effort and despite what industry is trying to convey in this sexy PR and these marketing campaigns, it's clear that there is not an all-hands-on-deck effort right now. Yeah. And that's really troubling. You'd think that you know major pharmaceutical corporations realize that this is a uh, put-up-or-shut-up moment where everybody should be deciding that they're going to be a part of this COVID response. But you're seeing, you know, at the same time, they're just saying, look, the, the profit uh, margin for us just doesn't make any sense, and so maybe not. Now, I, the, the question I, I guess I have is, is there a possibility for government to compel these pharmaceutical companies to manufacture this uh, vaccine if we get one and, and, and we need it out there? There's certainly mechanisms under law. And so, you know, you've heard a lot of discussion recently about the Dis Defense Production Act, which allows the federal government to coordinate the response to, you know, install equipment to get companies to prioritize certain kinds of contracts. The government also actually has some manufacturing capacity itself. They set up four public-private partnerships uh, around 2012 because they realized that this could be a significant issue. Unfortunately, they haven't been able to scale up those production facilities in the way that is needed for this response. But there's still time. Hmm. So let's, um, let's think that through for a second. So we get to the point where 17, 18 months from now, we have a vaccine. And we have to make a choice about getting it out. What is the fastest that we could get enough vaccine out right now if all hands were actually on deck? Could we 
Could we get it out in a month or would it take several months? It's really hard to say. The issue is that for some of these technologies like the mRNA vaccine, you know, we've taken them far, but we've never taken them this far. And so while we know how to how to make them in small quantities, there's a ton of work that still needs to be done to figure out how do we actually scale this up for production? How do we get ready to mass produce this vaccine? Like right now, we don't have we basically have very limited capacity on producing these mRNA vaccines, which are some of the more promising ones that are that are advancing in very early clinical trials. I've heard that there are um, there are old vaccines that we've used for other viruses that are now being tested for safety and efficacy for the prevention of uh, of, of COVID-19. And we know they're safe. So, you know, really it's just focused on efficacy. Let's say that one of those panned out and, you know, it's not the perfect drug. It's not as sexy or, or novel as these mRNA vaccines are. Um, what if, you know, it was just about mass producing uh, this old uh, this old kind of vaccine for a new purpose. What would that look like and who would pay for that and who would make money off the back end? Well, you know, again, it, it's I wouldn't want to speculate too much on what actually pans out and how we'll go about doing it. But it's clear that if some of the older technologies we've used to produce vaccines were employed, it would be easier to scale up production capacity. You know, not just here in the U.S., but globally as well, because we do have some of that capacity. We do have some of that um, infrastructure in place. But a key issue to highlight here is that it's not just the production capacity that's a barrier. You know, it's also that the system that we've developed allows these companies to get monopolies on these vaccines, on these treatments. And so they effectively, you know, the monopolies prohibit other companies from joining in unless they agree, you know, unless they come to some sort of agreement with the company itself. And that's a huge problem. Mm. So, you know, what you're saying basically is that, you know, when we give a patent out for a drug, um, it gives a single corporation a monopoly. And so all of this research that the taxpayers uh, in this country paid for, um, then the money side of it gets held by one corporation who basically can throttle the supply of this thing at will. Exactly. And it's and it's and it's so troubling because these are our medicines. You know, we paid hundreds of millions of dollars over the years in developing these technologies and developing these medicines. And it should be obvious that they should be available to us. Instead, what happens is we give these companies monopolies on our medicines with almost no strings attached. And this has super troubling implications, not just for supply, but also for price. And how does that uh, shape into the, the price? Well, if you give a company a monopoly, they have the power to, to set the price. And people understand this, right? People understand that there is a drug pricing crisis in this country that has been going on long before the COVID-19 outbreak. You know, three in 10 Americans report rationing their medicines. And a large part of that is because we let pharmaceutical corporations set whatever price they want and we say nothing. Hmm. So you're imagining a scenario potentially, right? And again, it's hard to speculate, but potentially given the way we've set up our uh, pharmaceutical pricing and supply system where DARPA and BARDA have invested a huge amount of our taxpayer dollars into understanding uh, this vaccine, doing the research and development on the front end. And then you have a corporation on the back end that now, you know, owns the the intellectual property and either throttles the supply or sets the price so high that we as taxpayers are uh, forced to pay it again. So like there's a there's sort of an insulin um, uh, in access problem where, you know, in effect, because of all this, um, there are going to be people who basically can't get the vaccine simply because it's owned by one company. That could be a very real possibility. And, you know, the companies will say, we're not going to do this. You know, it's a pandemic. We understand. But that logic is very insulting. 
you know, because you've been saying you're committed to access and affordability, but what have you been doing for the past decade? You know, we have people in this country who are dying because they can't access insulin. You know, we have, we have an HIV epidemic that is not being curbed because uh, Truvada for PrEP was at, uh, had a list price of $2,400 a month. You know, what, it, what makes you think that these companies who have been price gouging us for decades are suddenly going to turn around and in this situation be like, oh, yeah, you know, we're working on a not-for-profit basis and we'll, and we'll make sure to, to, to supply everyone at an affordable price. If what we have seen from the companies in the past is any indicator of how access and price and supply is going to turn out, we're going to have massive problems, not just in this country, but globally as well. We could have an unprecedented moral catastrophe where a few countries hoard up the supply, a few countries are able to get the supply, and the rest of the world is completely shut out, and you see the virus just spreading unchecked. I want us to think about now, what are the solutions? Like, how do we fix this? Why are we so vulnerable and what should we be doing about it? The good news is that these are all choices we're making and so we can make different choices. There's really three things that we need to prioritize. One is that there should be no monopolies on any COVID-19 treatment or vaccine. You know, some companies are actually stepping up. Some drug companies have relinquished their monopoly rights and have allowed generic competition to, to, to fill in supply in some, in some cases. And if the companies don't do that, then the government should step in. The government has the inherent authority to use patents to break monopolies and to allow generic competition and to allow suppliers. So the government should do that, one. Two, we need to massively scale up production. So that means pouring much more money into scaling up both the public-private production facilities and also getting the pharmaceutical companies in line to get ready for these treatments and vaccines. Ideally, once a treatment or vaccine is proven effective, it should be available to everyone in the world as soon as possible. But right now, we have, we're going to have time gaps, we're going to have time lags, and we don't want any of that. And so we need to be getting ready to, for a situation in which we have the treatments and vaccines stockpiled, waiting, ready to go, ready to be deployed as soon as we can figure out if they are safe and effective. And the third thing we need is global cooperation. You know, President Trump has made some pretty horrible remarks about the World Health Organization, and the World Health Organization is certainly not without its flaws. But a key element of this crisis is that it is a global crisis. Nobody really knows where the treatment or vaccine will come from. You know, countries all around the world are spending millions of dollars for research and development. What we need is a global system that allows companies and countries to share knowledge, to share manufacturing know-how, to, to work together to be able to, to, to address this common challenge. I really, really appreciate you taking the time um, to break that down for us and help us to understand uh, how this system works and what the potential dangers uh, and traps look like. Um, how are you spending this moment? Uh, what is what is what is your uh, quarantine life look like? I work on these issues day in, day out, and it still hasn't really hit me yet. I'm looking at what is going on and what the world could be, and it just it, it's it's. It's terrifying, but the full scale of the crisis really still has not hit me. And I think part of it is I've, I've been doing a lot of reflecting. You know, this crisis, the key question it asks of us is, 
who do we consider disposable? You know, we're making choices right now that could shape the lives of billions of people. And none of these choices are inevitable. None of these paths are the natural way. We decide. You know, in the past, we've chosen disastrously. We had the global AIDS epidemic that is still going on. And we let millions of people die because of the high price of medicines. I've been really just trying to think about, are we capable of making that same mistake again? Is that the path that we want to go? Are we going to face another moral catastrophe? And I just, I, I, I hope we don't. I hope we don't. Well, I really, really appreciate uh, your leadership in this moment uh, in making sure that we don't. And um, thank you for joining us today and, uh, and for laying all that out. Zain Rizvi, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Abdul. As usual, on our way out, I want to tell you what I'm watching right now. COVID-19 is having a major impact on the American food supply. Restaurants and caterers are a major source of food consumption, and without them, food demand is falling through the floor. Meanwhile, COVID-19 is making factory operations and shipping nearly impossible. The result? Dairy farmers are letting milk flow down the drain, and a major meat supplier just shut its doors. What will the consequences of COVID-19 be for the U.S. food supply? That's it for today. We'll see you on Friday with another update. If you'd like to support organizations leading the fight to support our most vulnerable during this pandemic, donate to Crooked Media's Coronavirus Relief Fund at crooked.com coronavirus. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Stephen Hoffman is our senior producer. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra and Sydney Rapp. The theme song is by Takayasuzawa and Alex Huguera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. Thanks for listening.